We're here because we want to create opportunities for women to not just survive, but to thrive. So if we're not having an impact, we just don't exist. It's that simple. One of our big vision goals is we want to end exploitation. That's a vision that we have for our company and that we would even see the end of prostitution in Ethiopia and hopefully beyond. The generations that are rising up are starting to go, it's no longer an option to not know about where these things are made and how people are treated. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Ian Bentley. Ian is the founder and CEO of Parker Clay, a fashion company that creates premium leather goods sourced from Ethiopia. Ian previously served as president of Zia Group, a real estate developer, and has experience in marketing, sales, and business operations. Welcome, Ian. It is great to have you today. And Eva, thank you for having me. Happy to be on. Super excited to dig into this. Same here. Thank you for joining. And I want to start by asking you what inspired you to found Parker Clay? What were the early influences that led you to start your company? And how does what you're doing now also relate to your real estate background? And what have you brought from that part of your career to what you're doing now? Yeah, great questions. And, you know, it was quite the journey, I would say. Um, Started my career uh, here in Southern California, started young, got got married, had our first two kids, bought our first house, and kind of jumped into a career that was was rapidly growing in real estate. And my wife and I started talking about having a third child, and adoption came into that narrative. And that was really a moment that really changed the trajectory of of our lives. Probably didn't fully realize it at the moment, but after a trip to Ethiopia, adopting our daughter and bringing her back home. I remember this was about 2008 and my wife and I just kind of, you know, completely different experience going to Ethiopia, being really amazed by the culture and the country. And we started asking the question of what's next? How do we respond to what we we saw and experienced? And it led us down a path of exploring different career opportunities of which we a year after adopting our daughter, would buy one-way tickets and move our entire family to Ethiopia to help these women who had been trafficked, to help them find new opportunities and careers to be employed in the city in Ethiopia. You know, it really, we'll get into it maybe later, but the story of Parker Clay emerged after we had moved to Ethiopia to help kind of volunteer our time with these women specifically. It was a very different contrast from Southern California real estate uh, to go into the fashion world. That is fascinating. I would love (laughs) to know what the aha moment was. Was it 
meeting a particular woman who told you her story? Was it, you know, maybe seeing kind of an industry that you didn't think was treating women fairly? Was it seeing an opportunity in in fashion? What was it for you? And I think the point personally for me was, I remember my wife and I, as we were deciding to adopt, we kind of came across the statistic of orphans worldwide, which was in the number of 160 million orphans around the world. And that number is just out of control. You don't even know what to do with that. The context for me became, what if that was Parker? And what if that was Clay, which were our two first sons, and hence where the name came from. And that that thought for me was jarring to the extent of, I would do whatever it takes. Of course, these are my kids. That was really a moment that propelled us to adopt. But I would say that the second part of that story is when we were in Ethiopia adopting our daughter, we started to, you know, the concept of Ethiopia, I think, is often the poster child of the 70s and 80s of famine, poverty, which while, you know, is certainly the case and those challenges are there, there's another story that wasn't told and we didn't realize until we went there of the young, vibrant community of a culture that's welcoming and beautiful. And it was in that trip where we saw this different side of Ethiopia, where we felt like there was such an opportunity. And the convergence of these two things really came to life when we started to meet women who were being trafficked and caught in prostitution, of which many of these women were orphans. And so we had this very personal story of, you know, now no longer is my daughter an orphan, she's my daughter. And I looked at all these other women and we, we said, we've got to do something. And what is the greatest need here? And so that's what ultimately led us to, you know, moving our family there. That was aha number one. I think aha number two and Parker Clay, you know, came a little bit later while we lived there. How did you choose to get into leather products? Aha number two. That was while we were living there. And I was, we were actually out looking for a birthday gift for my wife. And there's no real big malls and centers with international brands in Ethiopia. And so we happened to be at a kind of a smaller boutique shop and we found a leather bag. And it just, it piqued both the interest of myself and my wife. And we looked at it and we kind of were going, where did the, where was this from? And we saw a tag on the inside of the bag that said made in Ethiopia. And conveniently on the back side of the tag was this guy's phone number. So we literally picked up the phone and called this person and said, Hey, can we get other things made by you? He goes, Oh yeah, no problem. So we have coffee. And I'm just curious right at this point going, how is leather here in Ethiopia? Because of course you see animals and cows and goats, you know, roaming the streets, but I didn't realize leather was such a big thing. So he took me to a tannery and at the tannery, what I experienced was them loading shipping containers with leather. And when I asked the owner where it was going, he said, oh, we're shipping this to Italy. And it was like, hold on, you're shipping this Ethiopian leather to Italy? And most people, the next logical thought is, I know some brands that are made in Italy, but what leather are they using? And so it put it took me down this path of discovering that this really incredible raw material from Ethiopia was being sourced from Ethiopia, but made in these other countries. And so that moment of aha going, we're here because we want to create opportunities for women to not just survive, but to thrive. And if we can do it by way of making a product, isn't just creating those jobs, but it's a beautiful product that consumers want. That was the moment of going, this is a huge opportunity to do both those things. Is it hard to get a business set up there? Is there a lot of red tape and bureaucracy or are they pretty friendly? So Ethiopia has been one of the fastest growing economies in the world, certainly one of the fastest in Africa. The opportunity and and kind of the friendly foreigner investment, you know, there's certain restrictions on different parts of the economy that you can and can't invest in as a foreigner. There are certain 
thresholds and what you have to invest into the country to be able to start a business. So we did that. There's challenges for sure. It's definitely not a place where it's just easy to go on a whim. Hey, let's start a business in Ethiopia. Partially, I think a big reason we were more successful at it is that we lived there for three years. And because we lived there, we had built a network and built up the knowledge and had people and context that allowed us to do that much more successfully from day one than I think perhaps someone coming in from outside would have had. So we did have, a, I think, a, a unique advantage uh, into doing that. Since then, you know, our factory, we started with a couple employees, a couple sewing machines. And this year, we will have created over 500,000 hours of employment, have 200 employees in our factory that's been expanding, you know, more than doubling year over year. So we're really proud of what we've been able to build over these, these last few years. You coined the term fashion on purpose, which describes new ways of creating fashion around free trade, fair trade, ethical fashion, or uneven conscious consumerism. Can you talk about how leather plays into that definition in kind of the, you know, the new way that consumers are looking at fashion and and in particular leather goods? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would take a step back a little bit further and, you know, looking back to this concept of fast fashion, right, which kind of was derived out of the fast food and, you know, just, hey, this stuff is not good. And in 2003, there was a factory in Bangladesh that collapsed. And, you know, what that the ripple effects of what that that created were monumental and, you know, killing over a thousand people and, and really this awakening of the market to go, wait, where are my products made? How are they made? I think that was already happening in the market where consumers were starting to want to know more, but that moment was big for the industry. The generations that are kind of rising up in terms of consumers, the Gen Zs and millennials and, and even older are starting to go, it's no longer an option for us to not know about where these things are made and how people are treated. We want to make sure people are taken care of. And that's something that is foundational, right, for brands. And I think some of these bigger brands that have been around a long time are trying to adjust, but they're not adjusting fast enough to that. And so we've always believed with, you know, only when we celebrate the value of people, we have that kind of purpose within the fashion industry. But it starts with the people behind the product. So that's number one, is that you celebrate the value of people. And then in terms of the the environmental impact of it, that's another component where you start to look at sustainability and ethical fashion. And what does that actually mean? And I really believe that while ethical fashion and ethical manufacturing is celebrated, our hope is that that becomes the standard, right? It's celebrated because it's unique and we want to see more of it. But why is it not standard? Why do we have to celebrate those things? Why aren't they just normal? Why is celebrating people not more normal? So I think those are kind of the to us, the foundation of that, that conversation. And then on the environmental impact, you know, what has been happening is, you know, Ethiopia for centuries has been trading leather, it's livestock, the sixth largest population of livestock in the world. And a lot of these animals are part of the community, really. Early days, what had happened is a lot of these rural farmers, you know, their livestock either live their life And then they kind of transition, they pass away, or they're killed for the meat industry. And it's a byproduct. And and in a place like Ethiopia, you want all resources to be used. And so what we look at from a leather industry standpoint is that there's a lot of opportunity to kind of upcycle something that perhaps was discarded, you know, as waste, which isn't good. And that we're able to create something that is also very, that has a long life, right? With a leather product, 
we have a lifetime guarantee with our product. So we expect you to use that for life and pass it down even versus a lot of the other kind of fashion trends and things that are changing so fast. You buy it and then you kind of discard it maybe after a few months or after a year because you're on to the next thing. That's kind of a big part of what we look at with the leather. Are there any special ways to to produce leather products in a more sustainable fashion than others? Absolutely. So the chemicals that go into it, a lot of times there's there's harmful additives and things that can kind of happen with chrome and, and other uh, products. And we are really pushing the industry. And Ethiopia actually has some of the most progressive tanning processes in the leather industry. For example, at the, in, the tannery that we're working at, they're recycling all of the water they're able to extract any chemicals that go in the process versus having any of it go back into the environment. We're also using a lot of more organic tannins and things that go into that process versus a lot more of the chemical processes. So there definitely is. And I think that's one of the things that we're proud of is that we produce a, a leather product that is very natural in its characteristic. We don't coat it with any plastics or anything else. So, so it represents really the natural beauty of it. Ethiopia has this really unique leather and we want that to shine through. And then also in the process, make sure that the environment is not being harmed in it as well. So in a way we look at it, there's a really beautiful narrative in the whole process from kind of the farmer to the finished product, that this is actually a much more sustainable way to do it. And we want to continue to challenge the industry to go more into that process versus some of the factories in China and other locations that typically care a little bit less about the environmental impact of it. Ian, something that really stood out to me about your product is that you send a card alongside each bag that explains your impact. It looked very much so like an a social impact report and some of the numbers that we get from our portfolio companies. And it really stood out to me as very communicative and transparent. And I love that from the consumer standpoint. Can you maybe explain why you decided to communicate with your customers in the way that you do and and maybe what impact that has had on the success of your brand? Absolutely. It's it's something we're really proud of and, and want to be completely transparent and open with that impact. It's one of the reasons why we decided to go the route of having our own factory in Ethiopia. We're one of you know few brands that actually have their own factory at the location where products are sourced and where it's made. And one of the reasons we did that is because we felt like we could have the biggest impact by doing that. And we have local leadership. Our team in Ethiopia is 80% women. We believe in women as a huge uh, component of the success of our factory and of our team as they typically reinvest a lot more money back into communities and tend to be a little bit more responsible with some of that. You know, the impact side of it, it's not a veneer. It's not sprinkled on as an afterthought. It's integral to everything that we do at Parker Clay. So if we're not having an impact, we just don't exist. It's that simple. The B Corp certification that we are, those are all things that I think add acknowledgement to that impact. But we also want the consumer to feel part of our community, right? You're not just a purchaser. You're not just a customer. You're part of our community. And truly that impact that you're able to make by purchasing a bag is directly impacting the life of someone in Ethiopia and enabling us to have an even greater impact. So it's one of the reasons why on our website, we've added hours of employment by product so you can see with whatever product you're purchasing, the amount of hours of employment you're creating by that purchase. And then if you go into our impact page, you see the layers in which we really go into that, be it the investment of women, what we've called our center of excellence. So a lot of the women that we have 
can, can t- tend to have a little education or training and we're able to bring them into our factory, give them world-class training so that they can become one of the best stitchers in our factory, which we believe in the world, uh, making our products. And that's something that I want really the customer to know that they're part of, right? And I think sometimes we get this, hey, we donated 1%, which is great, but it, it, it misses that connection. And again, because we have a factory, because we've been so intentional with it, we can kind of bring you into that story to say, hey, because of you, we were able to do this. And the benefit is you get to enjoy this beautiful product, right? And that marriage of those two things is really important and why we do what we do. How long does it take to turn someone into a world-class stitcher? Like a one-year process? Is it a one-week? Like, can you give me some sense of, I've always wanted to be a, like a backpack stitcher in another life. Yep. I know that's a weird thing to say, but um, I'm a, I won't even get into why. <laughs> but basically, I'm just curious, like if I was going to go down that journey, how, how long would it take? Could you, Ian, just add on to that and tell us maybe where the women's journey begins? Because I know that you hire them out of prostitution. So maybe just describe to us where they start and then how they get to be a world-class stitcher. And so perhaps the belief, and maybe your audience would appreciate this, is I think that, you know, this desire to see, we would view them as problems turned into potential. When we view people who have that capacity, potential, and value when they're given the opportunity. There's a gift within poverty that has been there that have pushed and propelled because of the challenges that they've faced have said, I am hungry for opportunity. Give me an opportunity and I'll show you what I can do. And so with a lot of the women that we hire, when we lived in Ethiopia, we worked with women who were either trafficked or in prostitution, which the estimate is that there's over 150,000 women in just the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, who are in prostitution. And a lot of it is not because, hey, this is a good job. It's because I will do whatever it takes to put food on the table for my family. That drive that has been instilled in a lot of these women translates into a very healthy environment where we can bring them in. They go through and we partner with an organization that helps with counseling and rehabilitation, which is really important to our process. And of that, when those women graduate, we bring them in and do a training program, which can be anywhere from three to six months. And so in those three to six months, we can get you started. And in some cases, we've seen women in as little as three to six months become one of our top stitchers, which is remarkable. And I would say anywhere from six to 12 months, you could come in with little education, little training, but a whole lot of heart and desire to do something and to really challenge yourself. And you can become one of our world-class stitchers. We're, we're proud of the program we've put in place to do that. But part of the ingredients that go into it is that, that desire to learn and to be hungry for the opportunity. It turns out that, you know, to me, I would rather invest in that all day long than someone who has a four-year college education. Not that that's bad, but there's something about that drive that these women have. Um, Like I could tell you countless stories of women who we've met along the way who've told us just the most remarkable stories of having to overcome obstacles with their family, their kids. And now the stories that we're hearing are stories in which their kids are first in their class. That generational change isn't just impacting the woman, but it's it's starting to impact the next generation. And these kids that are going to become leaders of the country, leaders of the world, all started because we are creating such opportunities with stitching a leather bag. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it shows a lot about the ability to provide a livelihood and how it can have its own leverage effect within somebody's life life and the lives of their families. I actually wanted to ask you something specific. When you think about the impact that your company is having, do you consider the indirect beneficiaries? Do you consider the the family members, you know, that that might be benefiting but not necessarily in a direct way? Great question. And that's something that we we are going to be tracking more in the new year because we believe there's a significant impact on that. One of the statistics that we look at and that's that's often reported in a place like Ethiopia is that for every one life you create that opportunity for, it actually impacts six. So, you know, if we've got 200 people in our factory, multiply that by six and you've got essentially 1200 lives that are impacted by that, you know, because of Ethiopia being such a communal country. And and again, because of statistics, like knowing that women and reinvest up to 90% of their incomes back into the communities, into their families. We know that that impact is really a lot bigger than what we just report on in our own factory. And that's just, you know, through other people in the supply chain and vendors and logistics and shipping and all those other pieces. That's where we one of our big vision goals is we want to end exploitation. That's a vision that we have for our company and that we would even see the end of prostitution in Ethiopia and hopefully beyond because such exploitation is happening through that. And it really starts with first, let's celebrate people and let's create opportunities and jobs where people can thrive through that. So the ripple effects are massive. There's no question. How would you describe your leadership style? And do you have to change it when you're in Ethiopia at your factory? I have been on a journey with my leadership over the last few years. Certainly cross-cultural is a very interesting dynamic. I love it. I love the challenge, um, partially because I'm wired as a more relational leader anyways. And in Ethiopia, you know, being face-to-face and in person is such a big, big part of that that country. And um, I think, again, living in Ethiopia enabled us to really understand what that took. You know, when you say something, what does it actually translate into? You know, you think something is set and you thought you've made yourself clear, but it turns out it's quite the opposite, right? So you, you sometimes have to learn that the hard way. You know, I think for me, relational, right? And I, I'm a big picture, big vision thinker, believe that the fashion industry is really primed to be disrupted for the purpose of bringing this type of a conscious consumerism more to the forefront of it. And so, you know, we're looking at at a really big goal uh, in terms of what we're doing. But at the end of the day, you know, it's all about people. And we know that it's the people that are going to really drive, propel us forward. And so it's one in which that empowerment comes with that opportunity. And leadership is certainly a tricky thing because you got to kind of get out of your own head and have, you know, this idea of really understanding where other people are positioned and what they need. And so, you know, I think for me in this last year, especially in a year like 2020, it has been a, you know, master's class of really digging deep into that, making sure that I'm speaking with clarity, making sure that I'm, you know, driving in the right direction and giving people what they need along with what the business needs. So I would say this year in particular, it's been a significant growth year for me as a leader as well. I would love to turn to you more personally and ask some of our rapid fire questions so that our listeners can get to know you better. Starting off, what book is on your nightstand right now? Good question. I have a book called Scaling Up, which is kind of a business building book. And then I have, can I say two? The other one is The Obstacle is the Way, which is another book that has been great this year. Okay. Well, you clearly have a lot to do every day. So what is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? 
coffee, like, and it's Ethiopian coffee, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so Ethiopian coffee is a, is a little bit more like earthy. Is that right? Maybe? How would you describe it? It's just the best. Yeah. A little bit more earthy, you know, a little bit more fruity to it. Some people describe it almost as like fruity pebbles if you're eating a or drinking a really good cup of it. But I, I mean, they're, they're the ones that invented it. So it's, it's just amazing. Do you do it Ethiopian style with the little cooker thing or do you do a regular? We, yeah, the, it, to the clay, the clay Jevena. We try to do that with our team pretty often where we have a coffee and again, communal, because when you're in Ethiopia, you do this where they hand, they hand roast it, hand grind it. And then you get three cups, which are smaller cups. But the whole concept in it is that it's about conversation. The first cup, you're kind of shallow conversation. The second, you're getting a little deeper. And by the third, you're, you know, talking about all kinds of personal stuff. So it's, I love the community aspect of coffee drinking there. Here, it's a little bit more, give me my coffee, let me get my day going. But um, when I can, I love that process. When Robin and I first moved to Dallas, there was an Ethiopian community festival. There's a a big Ethiopian community in Dallas. And this was quite a large festival. It was in a big convention center. And we went there just to kind of like check it out. And I'm sure we were the only non-Ethiopian people there, (laughs) which was interesting, but they are very welcoming. And so we went into this like coffee ritual presentation and we sat down and then they did that whole thing where there was like multiple rounds and it was really, really cool. Uh, it was quite fun. And like, yeah, usually there's incense burning and other yeah. stuff going on. And, it, and it's it's actually hard from a Western perspective. You're kind of like, hey, just give me my coffee. I got to go. And they're like, no, 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 sit down. <laughs> you, you, you take as long as it takes to drink this coffee. And it's it's so good. I mean, that, that rhythm, I think, is often forgotten about in Western culture. And it's one of my favorite things about going to Ethiopia is just slowing down a little bit to kind of enjoy some of those moments. Yeah. Absolutely. Name something that is giving you hope right now. Oh, watching my kids every day. I think that's that gives me hope in what's what's to come. Their resilience through such hard things this year, and yet they are still smiles and joy is something that gives me great hope every day. Is there a trend that you're watching in your industry at the moment? E-commerce. E-commerce this year in particular with a lockdown has been off the charts. Essentially, the growth of e-commerce in this year alone has grown the equivalent of what it's done over the last 10 years. So we believe that next year, uh, what we've seen this year from e-commerce growth is going to be just off the charts for direct consumer business, business and brands. And do you have a favorite resource for staying up to date on current events? Any kind of podcasts or websites or newsletter? How do you, how do you keep up with the world? It's a little bit of a concoction. I am on Medium quite a bit. Uh, I watch Business of Fashion is a resource from a fashion standpoint. And then I'm kind of a fan of just Google News, typing in, just kind of looking at the, the trends that Google seems to know me well enough. It's kind of creepy, but you know that's one of the areas where I usually kind of go across those three components every day. I love Business of Fashion. I think it's it's a lot of fun. That's that's one that that I definitely listen to for fun. And to that point, what is the best way for you to unwind? How do you un- unwind and maybe think about other things than your industry? That is a great question and I think one in which a lot of leaders probably struggle with or maybe not. But I know for me, I have learned this year in terms of leadership to when to pause and celebrate because I'm often thinking 10 years down the road or so much further. And so I think I'm, I'm guilty of not doing that as, probably as well as I should. But honestly, at the simplest form, it's probably just disconnecting and playing with my kids and my family, going to the beach, going for a walk. Some of those, obviously, being in Santa Barbara, I, we can take that for granted. But in a way, it's kind of a simple form of being able to just 
enjoy the people that are right in front of me. And what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? <laughs> oh, pace yourself. Gosh, that's such a good question. I, know. I would say that it really is find rhythm, find rhythms that, that balance your life because I think when you're pushing for something big and you have a big vision, you got to be careful not to burn yourself out and you got to find a rhythm that makes sense to, to balance the hard work and also the ability to recharge. I think that we're just hardwired in a way where, you know, we can do those things and sprint, but we can't sprint for 10 years. You know, we need to be able to pull back and rest and recharge. And as a leader, I would look at that and say, also be able to help your team navigate those things as well. I think the rhythms of life really respecting and um, leaning into that. Yeah. It's so important to have a source of sustaining energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to sum up this incredible interview, I wanted to know where you see Parker Clay in 10 years and maybe even thinking about the impact that the company has. What mark do you hope to leave on the world? Yeah, I love this question. Um, that's that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about it. In 10 years, you know, I, I envision Parker Clay as one of the world's top brands that is not just speaking to consumers for its sense of fashion and sense of style and quality, but it, that it's speaking to the world because of the impact that, you know, quite frankly, we all want to make and leave on the world that you don't need to compromise between quality and style and celebrating the value of that person who's behind it, that both those things can exist together. And I believe that over these these next years, and, and we're already seeing it, that we can be a leader in the fashion space and, and really achieving that at the same time. And that we would see exploitation diminishing. We would see prostitution stopped because we've created these opportunities for people to realize their value and potential is beyond just being a commodity or, or what their body can offer. And so that that's really what we hope for and believe in the next 10 years. And I believe we're going to do it. Our business has been doubling year over year. We've been growing. Um, and that's not necessarily because we're making all the right decisions, but because the consumer is saying, yes, we want more of this. We want this to be more brands that we can vote with our dollar for who exist in the future. And so we believe we've stepped out kind of in pioneering this space and that over the next 10 years that we'll be able to see it take shape and really galvanize and be a leader, not just in what we're creating as a product, but that our voice would be a champion for the people behind it to really shine through and their potential that they have. And I hope it sparks and inspires others to follow suit as well. Well, keep it up. You're doing a lot of great things out there. It's been a real pleasure interviewing you today. This is this is just a really special company and give you all the credit in the world for what you're doing. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and hope to continue the conversation. Likewise. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.